0: Hey, we're still here at George Mason University. I'm here today with Sean Fullerton from the University of New Mexico. um, And we're gonna discuss a few articles he's recently published with some colleagues um, around topics like resistance training in secondary physical education and implementing long-term athletic development within K-12 physical education. So um, both of the articles uh, were recently published in Jofford and I'm gonna, as always, put the full citation for these articles in the show notes so you can kind of read their They're very approachable um, and really relevant for a lot of people, especially those um, of you who are teaching resistance training classes or elective PE. Um, so, uh, Sean, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on.
1: Yeah, thanks, Risto. I was thrilled when you asked me to, to come on here. Um, I want to thank my co-authors, uh, Dr. Goodrow, um, here at the University of New Mexico. She's an She's an awesome advisor. Um, helping me in my uh, my PhD program, and then uh, Ian Royce. Ian Royce is actually an undergraduate student that, that helped me with the uh, long term athletic development paper, and he is a, a phenomenal um, thinker and writer. And uh, we connected in some of his courses, and so I asked him to jump on that um, paper with us. Nice,
0: awesome uh, getting undergrads and in, uh, involved in publishing some papers. So. Uh, great work on that. And I'm wondering if uh, we can start off the podcast by uh, you telling us what athletic development and resistance training skills literacy are and uh, the importance of teaching these concepts to children and youth in our physical education classes.
1: Yeah, so resistance training skills literacy is actually a term that um, was kind of coined by uh, Dr. Fagenbaum, and he's published an article in 2023 in Joper talking about developing resistance training literacy uh, skills literacy in elementary um, education and so resistance training skills literacy is basically how you know we define physical literacy and physical education so it includes knowledge understandings uh, confidence skill performance but it revolves around um, muscular uh, muscle strengthening activities so anything that's um, bone or muscle strengthening um, jumping hopping Uh, sprinting, uh, resistance training exercises, you know, push-ups, squats, lunges, all those things. So resistance training skills literacy is those proficiency as well as um, the confidence and the knowledge uh, that go with those. And long-term athletic development, kind of as defined by Lloyd and colleagues in their position statement in 2016, they define it as the habitual development of athleticism over time to improve health and fitness, enhance physical performance, reduce the risk of injury, and develop confidence and competent competence in all youth and adolescents. And this is kind of really in line with the um, outcomes, the long-term outcomes in physical education. It's important to understand in long-term athletic development that they that all youth and adolescents can be seen as athletes where they're afforded the environment um, and instruction to develop their skills but all our um, youth in these programs aren't expected to go on to elite level or high level um, competitive athletics but it really just kind of sees um, uh, all-encompassing in program and this really comes out of what was called process of attaining sports mastery in the Soviet Union in the late 20th century. Um, It's really this long-term concept of uh, developing both, uh, you know, regular individuals, developing their skills, confidence, and um, knowledge regarding physical activity, but also a pathway to develop elite level athletes. And so it's kind of been modernized in the early 21st century with, um, some different models that have been put forth that are, um, they use the term long-term athletic development.
0: So is this, uh, is this the concept of squaring the triangle? Have you heard of that, of like having this like wide base and then narrowing down towards the top and like the very, very top of the triangle as a elite athlete in the NFL or NBA? Whereas you make it make the triangle square you're like everybody's considered an athlete you can grow in different ways and uh have different experiences
1: yeah you know um tudor bompa i don't know if i'm saying his name right but he has a good he actually has a triangle at the base of the triangle is is multi skill development and then it becomes more specialized but Bailey's model, long-term athletic development model, it has different pathways that a person can take depending on um, kind of where they want to go, and those pathways include recreational activities. It actually includes coaching, um, uh, officiating, uh, sports management, those those types of um, of tracks as well. So, it, it, yes, uh, I've never, I haven't heard that, but um, that seems applicable here. So I often hear this term early specialization. You bring that up mm-hmm.
0: in one of the papers. Um, what what do you consider early specialization and what are some of the issues that may come from that?
1: Yeah, so, um, well, special, sports specialization is really kind of defined as like an intense year-round single sport um, focus with the exclusion of other sports. So early specialization is really any sort of um, – Specialized training or competition in childhood or early adolescence. Um, so, you know, if, if a kid wants to be a great basketball player, you know, early specialization would kind of be defined as where they exclusive focus uh, they focus exclusively on basketball at like, you know, from twelve years twelve years old on. Um, that's really kind of what early specialization is and depending on the on the sport you know different sports can specialize at at different um times and growth and growth and maturation so some of the outcomes that have been documented in the research and again this kind of goes back to the old eastern Bloc, on soviet union they did some research with their um with their athletes but what we've kind of found is that uh, burnout so people are likely to to be burnt out um, of their sport or just physical activity in general um, they're more likely to be sedentary uh, one of the benefits that is often overlooked by um, like diversification or, or, or playing a, a multitude of sports is being exposed to different social groups so long-term athletic development you know is kind of based on developing a diverse set of skills. And this also includes like the social, emotional development of, you know, being around different coaches, being around different teammates. Um, you know, the increased risk of injury with, um, early special specialization is, is another thing that comes up with the repetitive movements. Um, and then also in, you know, here in the United States, there's such an emphasis on travel ball, um, year round, um, sports where you know there's like a, a physiological and a psychological load that's on these kids just year-round so um that can lead to uh lead to some overuse injuries um and obviously burnt out uh, being burnt out like we should so
0: i can imagine somebody who's tuning into this podcast because of the topic and they're thinking well my kid loves basketball and that's their sport why can't I let them play all year round? Because that's what they want to do. Um, From your position and what you've read in the research, would you suggest that parent, that uncle, that coach, whatever, to be like, trying to pull that kid away from basketball and have them learn some different sports? Or if that passion is basketball, then they keep playing basketball and that's fine. Or would you advocate for them it's because sometimes I can definitely see this from a parent's point of view of like a parent pushing a kid mm-hmm. to play basketball year around and structuring their environment. for that. But when it's coming from the kid and they're like, all I want to do is play golf. Do you let that kid play golf all the year around? Or is it your duty as a parent or coach to be like, hey, you need to take some time away from the sport and, you know, go swim or go learn how to skateboard, or do something else?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think one of the barriers, um, t- uh, Till uh, Till and colleagues, they did some research where they looked at, like, adherence to long-term athletic development, uh, the 10 pillars of long-term athletic development, and they found that, you know, parent education was, was one of the things that needed to be addressed. And we kind of look at some elite level athletes you know like kobe bryant comes to mind where you know or even tiger woods where from you know 5 years old they're doing one sport and they reach this elite level status and i don't know if that is, if they are the rule or they, they're the exception um uh within the within the models uh, the athletic skills model i think paints the picture really clearly where they I think they use it uh they use this term donor sports so like for example like a uh, a tennis player so a person can get better at tennis um without actually like playing more tennis they can do skills that have similar motor abilities so like uh, uh golf badminton cricket volleyball that they are developing skills within different contexts so um, Tom Islinsky writes this writes this paper. Um, it's kind of this inf- infamous paper in the strength conditioning world, but it's on the the research in from the um, Soviet Union, and and they they looked at you know youth that specialized and youth that didn't specialize. And so, when you develop a lot of motor abilities in a lot of different contexts, you kind of raise the adaptive capacities of your body once you get to specialized training. So I think part of it is education. Um, obviously you want kids to be able to, uh, you know, pursue activities that they enjoy. Um, and I would really encourage, you know, parents or, or coaches or whoever that, you know, part of his understanding, you know, maybe doing some other sports throughout the year is going to benefit them in their sport that they're really interested in and they really want to specialize in. so, um, Yeah. I think, I think parent and coach education is, is, is part of it. And, you know, just getting kids exposed to, to different sports, you know, traditional, non-traditional and, um, getting, getting them to develop skills and have fun with it. That's all going to help them down, down the road. You know, so, uh, and I know we've kind of talked about this term
0: already, but is there anything else you want to add to this idea of long-term athletic development or LTAD? Um, as a as a system
1: uh i wouldn't really say there's anything i want to add to it um you know there there is a there is a bunch of different models um resistance training is kind of a central pillar to long-term athletic development so uh muscular strength um there's a lot of a lot of benefits to developing muscular strength that's kind of one of the core tenets of long-term athletic development and Sometimes it can be a difficult concept to understand for like pre-adolescence and resistance training. You know, we think of like lifting weights or, or whatnot, but it's really kind of developing those um those uh motor patterns when it comes to squatting, lunging, hinging, sprinting, being able to to recruit those motor pathways. Um that's kind of really the only thing that I think is is critical right now as far as adding a concept to long-term athletic development so most most of the people
0: who listen to this podcast are either elementary middle or high school teachers or professors researching teachers in that space or their students looking to become elementary middle uh, high school teachers so what are some possible ways that teachers can teach resistance training skills in developmentally developmentally appropriate ways throughout the different instructional levels like Let's say, for instance, as an elementary school teacher, like, obviously, there's differences in what a high school kid can do versus an yeah. ele- elementary school, but I'm teaching resistance training skills to elementary kids. What, is that? what does that look like?
1: Hey, yeah, that's a great question. And we kind of, in the, in the article, we kind of align the instructional models with the long-term athletic development model. So we, you know, advocate for the skill theme approach at the elementary level. And, and resistance training skills is really... More your locomotion and your non-manipulatives, so um, sprinting, jumping, hopping, skipping, um, those sort of locomotive uh, movements, and then, uh, you know, lunging, hol- holding a uh, holding a plank position, you know, learning how to squat. And the thing with the elementary level is that you, you know, you can incorporate these things within within like a fun game. Um, so, like for example, if you do a tag game and you might, you know, play a game called Bridge and Rivers. So if you get tagged, you got to make a bridge. So that means you got to put, you know, kind of like a push-up position. You might not even call it a push-up position, but you just say you got to, you know, you got to get to a bridge. And then uh, to get unfrozen, you know, a river's got to come underneath you to get unfrozen. So that's kind of like a way that you can, you know, mix those into fun games. Um, Another one is you know, squatting with a beanbag on your head, um, you know, squatting down to a chair or a medicine ball or something like that. At the elementary level, um, Fagenbaum really, you know, says that um, youth, youth can do more structured resistance training as much as they can, um, you know, follow instructions. Uh, they're motivated to do it. But as far as most kids, you really just kinda like mix it into, into um into some fun games, into some fun activities. As they get older, you know, the physical best curriculum kinda has some good strategies for teaching muscular strength, and muscular endurance. Um there's a there's a third paper that I published in strategies. It's uh focus on focuses on eccentric, um eccentric resistance training, you know, where students are Controlling their body through the whole movement, you know, they're lowering themselves at a at a at a slow pace, at a slow tempo, and that really kind of recruits those motor units. It develops the movement pathway, um, and you can incorporate th- these into like some fun challenges. You can do some station station teaching. I really think of it like just sprinkling it in at the elementary level to make sure that you are incorporating some of these some of these skill themes. And if you're using the skill theme approach, then you're probably already focusing on those non-manipulatives you're already focusing on those um those uh locomotives and things like that i
0: know no 30 pound dumbbells and uh bars it's more so approaching yeah. through a skilled yeah. approach and using yeah. body weight exercises and yeah. maybe some other things that create resistance but more through games and activities like
1: absolutely and as they get older you know into fifth grade it kind of depends on your students you know i've done it with some of the kids in the summer camps but like you can give them you know 5 to 8 minutes of really good direct instruction of hey here's how you do a push up you know what i mean like we're not even focusing on the whole push up we're just focusing on the lowering phase you know and we're going to we're going to do some reciprocal teaching right one partner watches gives feedback I'm going to count down from 7 6 to really learn those basic fundamentals, but that's just within like a five second snapshot. And then from there, you know, they go on to the rest of their of their activities.
0: So when we move to older kids, say middle, high school, how does that you know, resistance training skill development look like when you're teaching middle and high school?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. You know, there's a big push from the strength and conditioning community for certified strength and conditioning specialists to get into high schools and, you know, they're starting to get in the middle schools. Um, you know, in these long-term athletic development models, the, the key marker is peak high velocity. So, you know, when, a, when, a, when a, a youth is growing at their fastest rate, and that's kind of the marker for when they begin adolescence and they can start some more um, weight training, with his, which is with implements, you know, some more um, work on, like, hypertrophy and those sorts of things. So you kind of need to know... Uh, where your students are at as far as growth and maturation. But at the middle school age, you're you're probably starting to incorporate maybe some um, medicine balls, um, you know, still focusing on, on body weight movements. Um, you might start to use some dumbbells and things like that. Um, but it's all, you know, based on the individual, you know, where they're at with their movement proficiencies, um, where they're at as far as their growth and maturation. Lubens and colleagues, I think in 2014, they published a resistance training skills uh, battery, which has six movements. It's like a plank, a push-up, a row, a squat, and a lunge, and then like overhead overhead press. And they have performance criteria where you can evaluate the um, skills literacy of of youth and it's also been modified for children as well where it's like a wall push-up and a lunge but those are good ways to kind of like evaluate um, the proficiency that students have and then like if they're ready for um, some more intense weight training Uh, but at the middle school level you know I think you should still be using an instructional model whether it's Don Hellison's um, teaching personal social responsibility um, differentiated instruction personalized system instruction Uh, You can even use sport education. You know, I think when you're teaching uh, strength and conditioning, it's it's still, you know, good teaching is good teaching, so um, it's appropriate to use uh, an instructional model that's appropriate for your students. So when we look at
0: more specifically secondary schools, you talked about the need to support teachers to teach resistance training content in schools, like you made... Mm -hmm. This comment about bringing like a certified strength and conditioning specialist now Mm -hmm. could be a PE teacher that gets their CSCS or I have a lot of my past students who have a kinesiology background and get a CSCS and they are really well primed to teach those weight training classes in secondary schools. Um, So I'm wondering if you can talk about the different resources that you suggest that Can help support teachers develop their own content knowledge related to this resistance training or teaching resistance training within physical education
1: yeah so i kind of think there's you know the Strength the conditioning association you know is really pushing for coaches to get into schools and i kind of think there's two things going on number one is i think that physical education teachers in in general lack resistance training content knowledge and we kind of know that they lack health-related fitness knowledge so that's kind of been researched um there was an article published in 2014 that saw that you know pe teachers as well as other practitioners lacked um this content knowledge and then on the flip side you know i want to caution the push of strength coaches getting into schools because i feel like you know this hasn't been researched but i feel like they lack the pedagogical knowledge, you know, of instructional, uh, instructional models and, and also all those sorts of things where they know the content really well, but maybe they, they may lack, um, some pedagogical knowledge. So as far as teachers go, um, you know, I think a good starting point is the NSCA has a, has a textbook out. It's, um, teaching strength conditioning in, in high school. That's really good for, for content knowledge. Um, I kind of always advocate for PE teachers to pursue some sort of certification. Uh, I'm, I'm a certified strength and conditioning specialist. And I feel like when I got that certification and studying for that, um, for that test, it like elevated my content knowledge. And, um, and that just made my teaching even better. Uh, and so there's other certifications you can get. I know, um, NASM, I think, has one that's specific for, for youth. I want to say there's a youth exercise specialist. I know ACE has one. I might, I might be getting them crossed up, but I think certifications is, is a big one that, that I recommend. I mean, you can even get like a NSCA personal trainer or NASM personal trainer, and that just kind of elevates your content knowledge when it comes to resistance training and strength, strength conditioning. Um, so I think that's the first place first place to start. So... You you talk about these recommendations
0: too in the, in the P programming to effectively prepare PE educators to teach mm-hmm. quality resistance training. So at Mason we have a specific class. We have like field and invasion games, and then we have Net and Target games. And one of our classes is teaching strength and conditioning, like teaching that content. So it's it's understanding that content knowledge. And I and I read in that in your paper that uh, only a fraction of universities actually have this class. It's like yeah. 26% or 28% of PE programs have a class that is teaching this content, but we see a lot of elective PE is yep. strength and conditioning, right? There's a lot of different avenues for elective PE. Um, Fairfax County Public Schools has two levels of yoga that you can take. They have aquatic, they have fitness trainer, they have personal wellness and all these other ones, but most of the time, if you go in, you see a strength and conditioning class. So a lot of high schools, um, but we don't really train for that um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in general across Pete. So um, one of the one of the four recommendations that you have is uh, having a resistance training course that focuses on the adolescent population. So yeah, um, do you have one at UNM? Have you in your undergraduate program do you have options to that? And what would you recommend for? like the PEAT educators on what they should do to reformat their classes to have this?
1: Yeah. So that's a great question. You know, a lot of times, like my undergraduate, for example, any class that I had, it was always content specific to the adult population and, um, adolescents are not many adults, you know, physiologically and psychologically. Um, and so I think that's, Part of it as well. Like some some programs may have a resistance training class or a strength and conditioning class, but it may not be for youth and adolescents because you know the growth and maturation that's going on during youth and adolescence, peak high velocity, you know, all those sorts of things need to be taken into account. Um, here at UNM, we have a, a course called Teaching Fitness Concepts. It's one element. Of that class, we kind of use the physical, uh, a physical best curriculum as a guide. And one thing that I, I think that programs can do, and that um, we we have been trying to do here at UNM is like you can get a certification through that class. Um, and you know the physical best includes the other components of, of fitness. Uh, and you know when I taught it, obviously I kind of went more towards the resistance training. Um, side of things but if you're getting a secondary endorsement to go teach you're probably going to go to a high school that has a weight training class um and you need the content knowledge to be able to to teach that class uh and so i think we need to include that in our p programs is that certificate embedded within a
0: single class that the course is kind of teaching you to go through and you're taking modules on on top of that that you leave a single class with a certificate yes so
1: how so how we do it is we proposed with like we um you just take a it's basically like a certification exam so you use the the textbook to teach the class and then it's just you can just use it like your final exam and it's like proctors online where the students take that that's their final and if you know they pass the the test they get they become phys- physical best certified but there's other classes like in strength and conditioning programs they use the the uh the cscs textbook and so that when they leave the program they're ready to get their certification um that can you know i don't think that's a deal breaker for for p programs but i think like mixing that in is is we're doing some sort of uh some sort of course where exercise science students can take it physical education you know pete students can take it where they're getting you know their cscs certification i think that really kind of ups the level of the profession you know with when when a physical educator is walking in the school and they're a certified strength conditioning specialist um because again you know there's a big push to get certified strength coaches into schools and it's like for physical educators to stay relevant you know they kind of um, need to, to get some sort of certification or, you know, make sure that they're teaching that content really, really well to advocate for the programs. So one of the other recommendations is, uh, to provide
0: a uh, professional development on the yeah. topic for in-service teachers. So what is, what does a good in-service look like for, um, people or to in-service teachers? What does a good in-service look like for resistance training or teaching these skills?
1: Well, that's a good question. You know that article originally came from a it came from a class that I was taking where I was focused on the chapter of professional development. And then it kind of like emerged to be what it is. you know, i i've I haven't done a professional development, but what I think it, you know, obviously, professional development is best when it has the interests of the teachers in mind. So they play a equal role in determining what is a part of their um a part of their uh professional development experience i think it's kind of like twofold what a um good professional development for in-service teachers would look like would be first with like just the general content so the you know principles of training periodization growth and maturation techniques of exercise you know all those sorts of things And then I think on the flip side is the practical application of that at the three different levels, the elementary, middle school, and high school. So like, what does it look like to teach resistance training skills within an elementary lesson? What does it look like in middle school? What does it look like at the high school? What are some course designs that you can do at the high school? How can you embed the resistance training skills, literacy in your elementary curriculum? Because like the vertical alignment between K-12 resistance training skills literacy should be a part of that where, you know, they're learning skills in the elementary level that is building in the middle school and that they're able to further develop in the high school. And um, so I think a professional development is kind of twofold, the content, but then also the practical application.
0: So, and One of the last recommendations that you talk about is developing these standards of common content knowledge with possible assessment tools to evaluate health-related fitness knowledge. And I know that there's been, you know, even in the late 2010s or 2000s, um, there's a lot of research that came out that was really shocking in the sense of like the the percentage of PE pre-service teachers who are, passing this content knowledge test or health related knowledge that yeah. was really, really low. I think it was out of South Carolina yeah. um, was where that research group was. And so we know that that's not, I mean, and going across the board, I think increasingly we have universities that I talk to other people who are having a hard time passing their health practice test or their physical education practice test right out the gates. And so, um, what what do you what do you mean when you talk about developing standards of common content knowledge
1: yeah so that recommendation kind of came from what i was reading and i actually tried to get my hands on some of the instruments that were used to measure content knowledge um this one study that you're referencing i think it was castelli and williams in 2007 they actually gave it was like a ninth level uh, ninth grade level health related fitness uh, exam or whatever and yeah you know, a lot of the teachers weren't able to pass it. And then Santiago has done a lot of work in in that area of assessing health-related fitness knowledge. Um, There's some that have been done with resistance training content knowledge. I mean, one, I think it was McLadry, if I'm saying that right, he sent one out that was like 90 questions. And so what I mean by that is when I was reading some of the literature, there there was one of the, one of the um, papers was talking about how like, there's no, like everybody keeps using a different tool to assess this knowledge. And that was one thing that they had um, put in their article is that like, there kind of has to be some template or some guideline of what is the knowledge that a teacher has to have to be able to have enough to be able to teach uh, youth and adolescents, that content. so um, you know as far as uh, aside from the the certification exams, you know, I kind of through that recommendation is that we kind of need to hunker down like if, if, if we include the curriculum in a P program, okay, what is what's the content that needs to be included in that? Periodization? What types of periodization? Is growth or maturation being included in that content? Um, you know, is, are these Olympic lifts being included in that content? So that's kind of what I had in that recommendation is that, uh, you know, I think health-related fitness knowledge, generally, there's a consensus on um, what's included in that uh, set of content knowledge. I, I don't feel like we really hunker down resistance training content knowledge um, that a K-12 teacher needs to have to be able to teach effectively. Yeah. Um
0: and I and I would agree. I think the health related knowledge is something that we hope that students are teaching and that they understand, but in reality, um they the research at least shows that they don't. Now, how many people are gonna pass a ninety question test? I think a lot of people doing this for free will stop at thirty and fill in yeah. the bubbles at the end. You yeah. so there's yeah. there's issues in that kind of like how to assess that for sure. But um, as we kind of wrap this up, I'm I'm wondering what do you feel like the big takeaway from these two articles together is, and maybe about possible ways to move forward and helping teachers provide these meaningful practices that can foster what we've talked about as this long-term athlete development.
1: The key takeaways, um, you know, I don't know. This is this is maybe just me. You know, I feel like there's no discussion between practitioners. You know, in like a P program, like the long term athletic de- development models aren't really discussed. Um, growth and maturation isn't really discussed within um within P programs and like how it impacts practice, you know, measuring peak height velocity and and those sorts of things. So um Do you do you think that so I, I was gonna ask you this earlier,
0: but do you think that the that long term athlete development is not talked about in by physical educators because most physical educators don't look at their students as athletes even though they might be right outside of the room yeah. or outside of the PE class but they don't look at their role as developing athletes yeah. which you you've talked about you talk about in the paper is that yeah potentially they should be and not that their athletes that are going to be elite level athletes right. but to consider themselves consider all of their students athletes and thinking about where can you maximize their health benefits because some yeah. of those models also talk about the goal isn't to create elite athletes it's right. to create healthy individuals right. but we do it through athletics and enjoyment of these activities and yeah. through athletics there's a bunch of physical activity that increases that's good for bone health and yeah so do you think that disconnect is that teachers just or PE teachers in general don't look at themselves teaching athletes they look at themselves educating kids and about movement
1: yeah I think that's part of it um you know it seems like these two fields are like running parallel to each other and they don't there's no there's no um There's no like agreeance in, because to me, it's like the goals of a long-term athletic development program. Like if you read Bailey's book and it has those seven phases, you know, retainment and all those things, it seems like it's pretty aligned with like the outcomes of physical education, like positive experiences with physical activity. You want individuals, you want kids to learn skills and confidence um, to be able to be physically active throughout their life. And so, to me, it's like they're almost like saying the same thing, but through two different means. I think a lot of teachers, PE teachers, you know, some of them may even be like anti anti athlete, like anti uh, competition, and 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 um, they are really you know teaching for for the uh, the non athletes. But our system here in the U.S. is. You know, it's somewhat decentralized, where a lot of a lot of kids go to private trainers, they go to private gyms, um, they get a lot of specialized coaches that come into the schools to work with the athletes. You know, this this idea of long term athletic development, like I said, it comes out of the um, Soviet Union in the second half of the 20th century, um, and their their physical education programs were like much more robust than ours as as far as like they they place a greater importance on the health and wellness of their entire population for really like three reasons. Number one is a strong military. Number two is a productive workforce, a productive and happy workforce. Number three is to develop elite level athletes. So they had to have programs that, um, where these, these, this long-term athletic development could be, could come out of, right. Without neglecting the health and wellness of, their greater population. And so I think there's a lot of decentral- decentralized programs here where, and until writes about this um, in the research that he's done, where there's not communication between stakeholders. So like if a kid goes to a travel ball coach, that travel ball coach is focused on his team and their performance. If he then goes to a PE teacher, the PE teacher is then focused on his performance in that class. Right. So like everybody's kind of like doing a, like a, 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 uh, a copy-and-paste job separate where, um, you know, ideally and kind of what Bailey lays forth is like this community idea of long-term athletic development where there's coordination between the athletic coaches, between the physical education program, between sport administrators and and things like that that kind of have the athletes and the students' best interests in mind. And a lot of practitioners will say that some of these models kind of fall apart in in reality in practice and i think it's because of the decentralized nature of our programs um but but really to me they're kind of like one of the same like when you look at a lot of the long-term athletic development practitioners you're like well that's just quality pe and then you look at you know quality pe and you're like well that's quality long-term athletic development it's like we're both singing the, the same the same song but like the music is different yeah
0: yeah, and I, I i will comment on the soviet union comment only because i grew up 50 miles from the soviet union warrior when i was in finland but like i get like i think usa versus soviet union in the 80s was a huge rivalry and the eastern Bloc. it was super confusing of why they were so good in developing all of these athletes whether it was in hockey or track and field or gymnastics and they definitely had a developmental model i mean there's a lot of issues that the Soviet Union also had during that during yeah, those years. Yeah, that didn't yeah. make it work as a as a community in general. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I think these these ideas of like I think you're right in the sense that there are a lot of people running uh, side by side with physical education towards the same goal. But it's like there's these corridors that we're running. We built these walls up to protect mm-hmm. ourselves, and physical education is running in the middle to, hey, let's have our kids as healthy as possible. Let's let them enjoy physical activity. And then right over in the other corridor, going to the same destination, sport coaches, you know, pediatric exercise scientists. Yeah. Um, You know, all of these different people are going towards the same thing. And I'm wondering, whose job is it to open the door and ask somebody to join us and be Mm -hmm. in that same space of whether... You know, I think, you know, if if we're trying to recruit future physical education teachers, Mm -hmm. uh, maybe those certified strength and conditioning specialist people who are realizing that, you know, personal training, waking up at four o'clock and working from four to 9 a.m. when people are, you know, not at work and then giving up your nights and weekends to be a personal trainer isn't what they want to do, but they want to work in high school with. Athletes, yeah. right? Or yeah. non athletes or whatever. And I think, you know, we are going in the same direction. We are just like you said, yeah. like the music's different. We're all dancing. Yeah. You know, like yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's so much overlap that's that's possible.
1: But, but yeah, that kind of happened with me where I was in the private sector, you know, straight conditioning, and then a lot of the things that I was teaching or coaching, I was like, Y'all should get this in your P E class. I'm like, what's going on here? So I was like, Well, let me just get in, you know, let me teach the P class and then everybody gets what they, what they need as far as, um, you know, skills go. And, you know, I want to make the point that like the long-term athletic development programs and, you know, through physical education is that we develop, you know, we want to develop the skills, knowledge, and dispositions to be physically active in life. And in developing those, those skills, it should afford the opportunity for, students or youth to pursue you know high level um, elite level af- uh, athletics and even in the research like the research shows that those that specialize later develop you know they they reach those elite levels so if you just like simply look at the research as like a parent or something it's like okay well i want my kid to go d1 or you know i want them to be a um, a really good really good at sports. The people generally that are really good at sports that reach those elite levels they played multiple sports growing up you know they didn't specialize until until later and then lastly for anybody that's interested you know i would really recommend them going to their local university library and seeing if they have dr Yeses's, um his journals down in the periodicals i found them down here at unm and they go all the way back to the 60s and it and you can read about their physical they, they call them they call them physical culture studies. But you look at their physical education programs and their teacher preparation, you know, their PE teachers had to go back to, to to the university like every two years to freshen up on, you know, the best practices and things like that. And so you can kind of learn about that more centralized, I guess, approach to physical education um, and how that, uh, how that is linked with with the athletics, um, Dr. Yeses he actually went to Cal State Fullerton. He passed away last week, but he has a lot of great books. Um, there's a lot of great books out there. Uh, all those, those models that I include in, in my papers, you know, I really recommend, um, physical educators, you know, reading one of them, you know, I think Bailey's is a good one, but, but they're all pretty good. And once you see them, they're kind of in line with the overall, you know, message of quality physical education
0: thanks sean um i think a lot of the stuff that you've talked about here is in a lot of detail and you have a lot of great citations and those two two papers so um for those of you who are listening the the papers are linked so you can kind of look at um uh, even the service certifi- certifications that you've talked talked about are linked there that people can, can look up to see if they want to incorporate those into their PE program so Um, I appreciate you sharing, um, thanks for coming on and I know that you'll be on here later once you, uh, once you get your doctorate and, uh, go on into, uh, into the world of research as you've been doing. So, um, thanks for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate you, uh, asking me to be on. It was, it was a lot of fun. Awesome. Thanks everybody. And, uh, again, uh, show notes has all of the links to the two papers and, uh, ways to get in contact with Sean if you are interested. Thanks, everybody.